welcome to MCS Pentecasts, podcasts about theology and life in the Spirit, featuring both scholars and practitioners. MCS Pentecasts are produced by Masters College and Seminary in Ontario, Canada. I'm Peter Newman, Academic Dean of Masters College. This Pentecast is part two of two of Dr. David Reed, Professor Emeritus of Wycliffe College, Toronto, Canada. Dr. Reed is speaking to a Pentecostal theology class at Masters Pentecostal Seminary and Tyndale Seminary on the topic, The Prosperity Gospel, recorded March 13, 2020. So, for me, if this, in fact, this is within the prosperity movement, and in a larger society now, to some degree, in the West, but if this, in fact, is a shift, then it could be just within that world of neoliberal economics, you know. Uh, and uh, if that's the case, then it will rise or fall on that movement. If, however, that movement becomes stronger throughout the world and in North America, you can expect a change in uh, practices like this. And I'm going to stop there before we get on, on the uh, section. Give me some feedback. Tell me something. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> Can we say that the theology of prosperity is actually a cultural appropriation of using the gospel? I mean, if you're poor, you want to be saved, but you want to have stuff as well. I mean, you have needs, so you you want to you believe that God will meet your needs, not only your soul needs. But your bodily needs. That's right. Just, just maybe I think about the theology of liberation. God will save you, but you, you need. Just what happened in Latin America. You need, you need to be socially free as well. You don't need to be bound to any person. I'll, I'll, I don't know if I've got it in here. If this is going to come up in a minute, but I would. My own professor back at Boston University was uh, uh, kind of a Bartian. Uh, Brunner theologian and so on, and was not uh, didn't have a lot of aspirations. Methodist didn't want to have, have a lot of aspirations to be a Pentecostal at all. But uh, but he wrote a book uh, titled Human Life. It's a biblical theology of life, human life, and uh, uh, I kept going back to it. He, uh, you might quibble with an area or two, but he does a whole biblical uh, study of life, and Jesus Christ is the life giver, First Corinthians 15, which is striking that Jesus Christ becomes the life giver in, in Greek. But he talks about levels of life. You know, survival life is basically hand to mouth. And in that he said, but that is not what human beings are called to. He said, we are called to have much richer experience of life in all ways, qualitatively. And so he he actually, in his own way, is saying that we thrive best when we have not just the bare necessities to live, but we can educate our children, for instance, that we can, we can, and he draws on the arts, that we can enjoy the arts, which are gifts of God for us, but you need to have money to be able to do that. So he incorporates all that in what would be the good Christian, the good life for us. And uh, and I, that struck me from coming from another angle. And that, yes. So I'm, yeah, with the prosperity gospel and theology, because sometimes I think of um, you know meeting like uh, meeting human need, right? So you know Jesus talks about giving to the poor, you've done that to him, but then Jesus talks a lot about abundance and having life to the full, right? And and a fullness. A fuller experience of life would include a measure of prosperity, especially if you're in um, deprivation, right? You know what I mean? Because we can take it very much for granted what prosperity means in our culture. Like we can, but you know, for someone in another culture, we're very prosperous, right? So for them to move to the level that maybe we are, that's a huge life-giving abundance, more than opposed to they got a meal today or they, you know, they had something today, right? So. I keep going back and forth. I really, I really love what I'm hearing here. It's very interesting because I don't know. Sometimes I'm wondering, am I limiting, limiting what God can do? 
by just this idea of, well, we shouldn't meet that need. Well, John 10.10 10 is in the present sense. I've, give, I've come to give you life and, and give life to the full. Mm -hmm. That is in present tense. That's not the future. And it's holistic. Right. My professor pointed that out. I, I look for them. But, uh, yeah. No, we'll, that's going to come up. So any, any more questions on this part? This cultural thing? Okay. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry. I just have one on the screen. Cyril? Hello? Yeah, we can hear you can now. You okay, yeah, so I, I identify with that the conversation regarding the cultural context um, somewhat of the prosperity gospel um, in of African origin. I, I can easily identify that living conditions here is by far prosperous compared to how we have lived in our place. And so there is some context to the people wanting some hope um, to be given that Christ is not saving only my soul, but uh, it also cares about my life. And I think that conversation should um, be factored into uh, this um, whole prosperity gospel um, in this context that it goes beyond what is just happening here. And in a global uh, sense, there, there could be some um, relevance to, to it, although uh, there are excesses and, and those should not be ignored also. Yes, thank you. Uh, I'm actually going to address that in just a moment. But, and, uh, but I've been in Africa and, and attended uh, a couple of churches that uh, are prosperity and, um, and I'll refer to that, but that is actually literally going to come up uh, in this next piece. Is that all right? But I agree totally with you. And I would add, I forget his name, but there's an Indian Pentecostal evangelist. And I forget his name. I've got his story uh, who taught a version, if you like, of prosperity gospel for years and God wants it to be abundant. And it happened one time, he had been an evangelist, Pentecost evangelist, but he was living dirt poor. And uh, one night he took his little, his little boy, had to go to, the, uh, to go to the toilet, and he took him out into the grass and, uh, and helped him do that. And while he was doing that, he thought, he said, prayed God, he said, is this the best that you can give your servants who sacrifice so much? And that turned him around. He said that God's got to have want more for us than this. But when it comes down to what he expected in terms of prosperity, as you point out, it's a whole lot less than what we actually expect over here. Mm -hmm. uh, but you, a, a, a certain level of, of quality of life uh, would be an education for your children. All of that would not be outside what God wants for you. Thank you. So let's move on quickly so we can get into this. Uh, uh, prosperity theology, your kingdom come, very much focused on kingdom theology, by the way, and uh, with some reference to Pat Francis. <coughs> the focus is a biblical meta-narrative. Let's see how they approach the Bible on this, the role of wealth and the praxis of the kingdom of God. Just a word, and I'm going to keep this brief. Uh, she's, uh, Pat Francis, but was born in Jamaica, some modest parents. They had a little grocery store, and uh, they had no education. Uh, but uh, they, she saw their generosity to those who really were in need, and that instilled in her a genetic gift, as she said, of compassion and enterprise on her part. And she got into health and homeless. Uh, 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 health... Uh, uh, work. She had her degree uh, out of uh, University of West Indies in uh, in uh, radiography. I, I was going to say radiology, but she corrected me on that. Radiography, and she came here. And as a young woman, over at Queensway Cathedral, uh, she when she got involved in, in in her work, 
she would take summer mission trips to Asia and places like that. And that's where she saw poverty in its worst form. And that just instilled in her a sense of compassion and she wanted to do something. So then in 1989, uh, she started a Bible study and ended up with, with a church, uh, about 2,000 plus go through the place on a weekend. And uh, she's quite a, a speaker, actually. She uh, has a lot of uh, ministries going on uh, besides the, just the preaching. And she's got a number of acknowledgments and recognitions. You can read that. <coughs> And her vision is to serve God and humanity and to make my world a better place. That's more of her kind of her secular side in a, in a way. But uh, she said her message is empowerment, self-enterprise, and kingdom dominion. Self-enterprise gets you from the political to the economic, by the way. Uh, prosperity theology. Uh, it's, I think that in many ways it's a near... Sui generis, in other words, unique and in, uh, um, movement. <clears throat> it's not traditionally evangelical, not exclusively charismatic, not typically liberal social gospel, not a version of the state church, but recognizable features from all of them. Now, I am going to summarize very quickly uh, uh, Peter Wagner. Peter Wagner was a missiologist, taught at Fuller Seminary for many years, and, uh, and then he did a seminar on vineyard ministries and, uh, and created a, quite a fuss at Fuller Seminary. And, uh, uh, but then he kind of went on, and kind of, that moved him into the charismatic world and he was overseas for many, many years. I don't know if, if he died there or not. But anyway, he, uh, 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 he, wrote two books, I think I have them here, The New Apostolic Church, 1998, 10 years later, Dominion, How Kingdom Ac Action Can Change the World. Now, <clears throat> it's a pop these are popular level books. He's an observer of what he sees happening, even though he is also a participant. And all I would say to you is that uh, I, I, uh, he, he is not just a promoter, although he is, that this is what, at the popular level, these are some of the best books to understand what's going on in the bigger picture with prosperity gospel. They're not that large, they're well, easily written, very well organized. And when I read them, I said, yeah, yeah, I recognize that. But just very quickly, uh, uh, in his book, Dominion, uh, he never when he said this, going back to Genesis, you know, uh, where God tells Genesis 1, God tells Adam to take dominion uh, uh, over, the, uh, over the world that he's made. Number one, the kingdom is not a theocracy. That means where the, the church runs the state. Uh, but it is placing Christian leaders into positions of leadership influential enough to shape our culture. We need money, well, power to do that. Uh, in the second apostolic age volume, uh, as in 2001, I think it's 1999, a kingdom call, he calls therefore a kingdom, uh, calls for a kingdom call for social transformation. Uh, and uh, he reviewed the history of Christian social involvement from Constantine to the Lausanne Covenant, where they talked about social justice and social transformation. So the new paradigm. <coughs> He brings out in Dominion Theology, it is saving souls and transforming society. And uh, uh, you get a lot out of the Zahn Covenant that way. And that's a shift in the stream of evangelicals that actually said we, all, we also must be involved in that. Uh, Jesus is the second Adam, take Dominion. Uh, and he's provided that for us uh, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a new vitality, the power of the spirit, and there's a new reality, so it's spiritual warfare, and I'll explain in a minute where that comes from. But the government is going to be different. It's shaped after the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. The new scenario, therefore, is the workplace, the extended church. The new apostles and prophets are not going to pre be preaching in your churches. They are going to be working in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in their offices and in their business world and wherever they are, transforming society. 
The workplace apostles are called to take dominion in business, government, arts and entertainment, media, family and education. And uh, the strategy is an effective apostolic strategy for the social transformation. And he says the new influence, he said, is money answers everything. Ecclesiastes 10. So that's shocking to you and me. He's saying it right out there. Uh, that's what's going on. So I wanted to put that in, in place. But here's the biblical narrative uh, that is slightly different from what you and I know. Number one, the garden starts in the Garden of Eden, the divine mandate to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Then, of course, corruption enters the creation. The evil one seizes control of the wealth from God. Satan will have dominion over the world and its, ha and its inhabitants. And Jesus, the second Adam, quote, regains the dominion over creation that the first Adam lost. So the followers, followers of Jesus are to be king, have a kingdom mandate to take back the creational wealth that God intended for all creatures to enjoy, enjoy and was stolen by Satan. That's the key. And so, therefore, it's a warfare. The devil does not want to give it up. And God says, you deserve it. It said it's mine. So uh, the authority comes the next level from the Abrahamic covenant, where the blessings are promised to Abraham, both material and spiritual, and are continued through Isaac, Jacob, David, and finally Jesus in the kingdom. Uh, Pat Francis refers to three, I've had interviews with her, three uh, passages of scripture. Jeremiah 20, and God plans to prosper you, give you hope and a future. Uh, the third John uh, in New Testament chapter 2, uh, third verse, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Now that gets beaten hard by the prosperity people, the non-prosperity that execute it to death. And so you have the warfare going on there. Go back at Deuteronomy. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirm his covenant. And so prosperity for her includes success, well-being, let's go back to your point, provision, everybody needs money to survive, abundance with the ability to give to others, to create solutions, to be a solution, and to have some sense of ease in life, victory, thriving, wealth, peace, and blessing. Prosperity for is not just about money, it is who you are and your ability to make a difference in the world. And that includes health, relationships, alliances, opportunities, ventures, beliefs, and mindset, the whole whole package. Uh, and she says God, it's God's plan for everyone to succeed, to prosper, and to live a life of well-being. Uh, she said God is very clear about poverty. Deuteronomy, there should be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you, he will richly bless you if only you fully obey the Lord your God. God connects prosperity with rich blessing and hearts of obedience to his commands. Uh, now, this brings about what is called the great wealth transfer from the devil to the people of God. Uh, and it's going to be for her in the end time revival. Not everybody, I think, teaches that, and I've been trying to sort it out. God will loose his harvest in lives... Uh, Exodus, let my people go in land, a land full of milk and honey, and resources, which God instructed the Hebrew and get this one. They really, she makes quite a big deal about this. Exodus 3. God instructed the Hebrew women before leaving Egypt to ask Egyptian women for articles of silver and gold and clothing. The writer concludes, so you will plunder the Egyptians. In the end time revival, she teaches, and I think Peter Byatt might as well. The church is about to enter an unprecedented period of prosperity as Jehovah Kaiyul, which is one of her favorite names for the God of wealth, makes the great wealth transfer to the people of God, manifesting the power of Christ and believers. That's a pretty bold statement, would you say? <laughs> now, it's, it all starts with that Abrahamic covenant. Yeah. You know, uh, you actually are to plunder the Egyptians. Uh, Just have to determine yeah. the Egyptians. Yeah. 
The devil's culture of poverty will be replaced by a culture of prosperity. Such a replacement requires a sanctified church dedicated manifesting God's power and glory. We don't work for money, as she said, we work for destiny. Uh, then she asked, does God trust you with wealth? That's a, I found that a very important uh, question for her to ask. Are you willing to be deployed? She basically said, if you're not ready to do that, don't expect God to bless you. So she's, she's got a little holiness stuck in there. Or, or, uh, and, and also not given to greed. Uh, she's resolute that God blesses those who are committed to blessing the world. Only by an unwavering commitment to the mission of the kingdom of God will God entrust wealth to us. Prosperity is mis missional, not a quid pro quo. Now, see, a lot of the prosperity people, the, at least the picture of them is that if I do this transaction, if I do this, God's going to give me this. So, and if I tithe, God's going to honor me and someone's going to bless me materially and so on. And, uh, and she said, you know, it is not a quid pro quo. Prosperity is actually missional. Uh, uh, the prosperity blessing is circular. You get this. God chooses the world's wealth to display God's glory. It's the wealth that will display his glory, not just a certain kind of monastic servitude. God prospers the church, and when it is dedicated to kingdom mission, God sanctifies the church, which God in turn presents to himself as a glorious church. She summarizes, I, I, God, will take your poverty, I'll turn it into prosperity, I'll clean you up, then present you to myself as an offering. That is the glorious church. Turning it on its head from, in my words, a seductive temptress of mine to sanctify to a sanctifying temple, a sign and symbol of divine favor. And that is the key to why they can display this, because it has to do with manifesting the glory of God. Uh, and of course, media doesn't get that. Her mission is grounded in Pentecostal Holy Spirit empowerment combined with practical strategic learning in and planning for wealth creation. Her church conducts regular seminars, provides mentors for learners. Larger and the larger goal to have enough financial capacity to give generously beyond their personal expenses to kingdom purposes. It is not just that you make enough money to uh, <clears throat> pay for your needs and some of your enhancements that you would like, you know, which a lot would do. But she said, you need to make a lot of money because once you, that the basis, he says, anybody can do that. Or should do that, that to make enough money to have your household. But you need to make a lot of money so that you can actually have power and influence in the world. And if you're going to actually make this great wealth transfer. Uh, uh, I, I'm going to do, just deal with this very quickly because Howard Snyder, who was the teacher at Tyndale Summit in his later years, uh, the Wesleyan uh, scholar, wrote a lot on, on the, new, the, the upcoming church, you know, the uh, wineskins and new wineskins, all of that. But he wrote a book that came before this, the Independent and Prosperity Gospel, got ahead of steam, on models of the kingdom, and it had eight different models. And I, I tried to tease out where she might fit. And those, and so I only, uh, uh, I, I only, uh, I, 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 I sum summarize it down. I cut it down into uh, the kingdom as Christianized culture. That was kind of the old social gospel movement, you know, where the the church would kind of uh, uh, do the work. Uh, basically the state in many ways. But she has five unique differences. One is the prosperity gospel movement is descended from the new order of the latter rain. So you can't fit them back in the 19th century, Russian Bush and those, those people. But the new order of the latter rain, not humanitarian action, Christian humanitarian action. Um, 
Bill Falco, as you may know, Peter, uh, did his thesis on the New Order of the Latter Rain. He published the first half in his Everlasting Gospel. He never got to write the second half, unfortunately. But by the way, the charismatic movement gets more shaping from the New Order of the Latter Rain than it does the historic uh, Pentecostal movement. You know, the manifestations, the revelations, and all of that comes from there. Uh, in the prosperity gospel movement, worldwide end time revival, the material wealth will be the spiritual currency, the spiritual currency through which God's commission will be accomplished. So the material wealth is going to be really important. The third, it teaches that money is the visible and material sign and means of the divine funding. Actually, like a sacrament, not these sacraments, but St. Thomas pointed out to the sacramental, that was the healing cloth, you know, that you place on somebody, pray over it, uh, and oil for an order. These are sacramentals in that sense. Uh, the latter rain is also uh, an end time revival, so it's more premillennial pre hope of Christ's return than it is uh, the amillennial or postmillennial understanding. And uh, five, uh, she believes in building partnerships with non-believers, the Ishmaels of the world, actually, uh, and that they ought to be brought in uh, to carry out the great transfer. She's very clear that she cooperates with non-believers uh, at the humanitarian level, but she's also clear about where she stands herself. Uh, minutes time for questions. Plundering the Devil's Den, you now know where that comes from. Six reflections. The there's a consensus among all Christians, I would say, that the Devil's Den was plundered sufficiently and for all time by Jesus' atoning death on the cross, his resurrection. Number two, uh, the prosperity gospel emphasis is on the present dimension of the kingdom, and it should be accepted as a corrective to evangelical views that spiritualize and interiorize the present kingdom of God in soul-saving, postponing the rest of the eschaton, and I have to get this in there. Particularly evident is in the conservative reform circles, Arthur Pink, Martin Lloyd-Jones, R.T. France, uh, William Hendrickson out of Dallas, I believe. It says the exclusive mandate of the church's evangelistic, quote, any other mandate outside of a directly evangelistic mandate is a distraction to the church and a hindrance for, to fulfilling its mission. Uh, I just leave that with you. That is still alive and well in certain quarters. Uh, number three, the effort to resolve differences over the prosperity gospel went to on purely non-dialogical biblical textbook grounds will be only partially satisfactory. By that I'm saying there's a whole pile of interpretations of what the kingdom of God is. Uh, uh, Craig Keener has, uh, I forget how many, 13 or 14 different interpretations of what the, of the Sermon on the Mount. And what I'm saying is, you can come back and throw back textbooks on this and that and the other thing, but, uh, but that will only get you so far. You need to look at it critically, number one. Number two, culturally, which helps with that critical look, say, okay, let's stand back. Where do we where do Pentecostals get the tithes and offerings thing? You know, so I'm not going to challenge you on that. You, you play with that one. But, you, but step, step back to it. You see, uh, it's no thing. You know, 200 years ago in the United States, and I don't probably was true in Canada, in the United States it was a state church, church system. And, of course, you didn't have to put in offerings. You, know, you would have an alms bowl or container, for the poor, and that's what you gave your money for, stained glass windows for the new church, stuff like that. But the state actually paid the clergy and, and all of that sort of thing. And then when uh, the United States went away from that and became an independent secular state, all of a sudden offering plates began to appear. And then we had to start working at that. And our mainline churches, their, our I identity is wrapped up in that. That's why the tithes and offerings actually don't, don't get much traction. Churches that were born on North American soil, however, don't have that memory. They, they happen afterwards, and they just automatically knew. If you didn't 
if you didn't get money to support the church, uh, you're not going to make it. And so you had to have good preaching and a good offering plate. Uh, to the degree that prosperity gospel authentically addresses the needs of the poor, to that degree, the material and the physical dimension of the kingdom is a sign of the presence of the kingdom, saving souls and doing justice. Uh, it, it is possible to view Pat, Pastor Pat's uh, ministry as fulfilling an important niche, therefore, within the wider context of traditional evangelical churches, all three have ministries to the poor. In the scripture repeats warnings of the lure of wealth and assurances that suffering is not an act of judgment, the prosperity gospel would be wise to preach the whole counsel of God. Uh, well then, the question, will the next generation of plunderers of the devil's den be the stewards and missionaries that Pastor Pat calls them to, or will they succumb to the temptation of an Ananias and Sapphira, and you know who they are? Uh, my brother and the line, I'm not sure that this answered your question. Uh, I did leave out a little bit from uh, from uh, Peter Wagner. But I, there's a number of things to say about it, but I'll just kind of sum it down. In Africa, you are correct in what you've seen it and you lived it much more than I, so I defer to you, but what I did see, I understand all of that. But the other thing that is happening in certain countries like Nigeria, the government is, and there's a, there's a chapter in this book by Derek on this, uh, an African scholar does a study of Nigeria. The, the government is so dysfunctional in some ways that what has happened is that the churches have grown so much that, uh, and are so powerful that now the church has more financial resources than the government in Nigeria. And he points out, however, that the poor are poorer now than they were before that happened. So the corruption that's in the church is real, apparently. And that is one study, that's one study, and I would like to see a whole lot more. So I, I defer on making big judgments uh, other than warnings for all of us that the, uh, that the, the church needs to be vigilant, it seems to me, on this. Although I'm going to read uh, quickly what, uh, what uh, Wagner says about this. In his book on Dominion, he said there are four things, three things rather, that have changed society throughout history. One is violence, take over. Number two is knowledge, where there's been a breakthrough and then like the Industrial Revolution, they can do certain kinds of things. And the third one is wealth. And that, the wealth, is the one that has made the biggest change in societies. So what he is looking for is the church worldwide to, to actually create enough money and wealth that they can actually influence the rest of society. I was in a prosperity church that was uh, only a few years old in Addis Ababa, and I have a, a whole series of teachings that they gave titled Occupy. And they, it's the same thing as dominion, occupy the land. And the first, in the first lecture or teaching, the uh, pastor was talking about the wealth that is in Africa. And he says, who owns that wealth? He said, all the colonial powers. Africa is still poor. Africa has to take back that wealth. And here's how it's going to happen. Oh, they were starting. They had four or five people in that church. It was about seven or eight years old that were members of parliament are involved in the government, Ethiopian government. And I, I couldn't, at that time, I didn't, why are they attracted to this church? Now I know why. They are speaking to the government about the economic realities. So, uh, so wealth is, uh, is God's mandate for the church 
in the uh, end times age. Well, let's take it on. Oh, by the way, he does say one more thing. There's no more, no direct correlation. Now, this might be, get a little fuzzy for us. Uh, a no direct correlation between <clears throat> prosperity and the love of money. And does anybody know anybody who doesn't have a lot of money but is also greedy? Yes. 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 That's what he's trying to make. And I've seen enough. I'm older than you. I can pack up. There are four demonic experiences he calls mammon actually demonic. One is greed. Number two is covetousness. Number three is stinginess. Number four is self-reliance. I don't need anybody else to me. Greed, covetousness, covetousness, stinginess, and self-reliance. Those four, any of us should take that on, I think. And that, if you preach that well in a prosperity church, they might actually do something. She's doing a lot of work in the justice system. They, that church takes young men in particular that, have, that are ready to go to jail and they come before the judge and she said, we'll take them. And if they have enough cred, they, the church takes these over, mentors them, trains them. So she's got, a, she's got something going for her that, uh, that I think is transformative. She started with a group. She said, I prayed to God when I started the church. God, send me some young people that are broken, have no future, maybe in a crime. And she said, I want to see your power in those lives. She said, I didn't realize that when I prayed that God sent me a hundred. And I had no idea that what I would do with them. She took them on a big retreat. When they came back, there was sufficient, sufficient conversion that happened with them that they grew over those years. And a number of those young people are now the pillars of her church. I could see the thing is, you can throw scriptures and try and interpret them this way and that way. I have time for that dimension of the kingdom. That's why I'm a little more, uh, a little more generous towards her than I have some others. We've got a couple of minutes. Uh, did brother back here on the screen? Did that help you in respond to your point? Yes, yes, that did. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, and and uh, Tapu, you mentioned about the church in Nigeria. That is uh, so true. Even in Ghana, where, where I'm from, there are those excesses in, in the prosperity gospel, and, and those need to be called out um, yeah. as well. So, yeah, thank you. Are you familiar with uh, uh, Jabula Ministries in uh, Harare, Zimbabwe, Tudor Bismarck? Yes. Yeah, he's a former. Yes, I've heard, I've heard. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I've heard of uh, Tudor Bismarck. Uh, not very familiar with his ministry, but um, I know the name. Yes. He is a former oneness United Pentecostal Church, pastor for 18 years, and then he left to do kingdom ministry. And his church, when I was there, had, I was there within four or five days. But about 6,000 plus in his church. And he's got a, he's, he kind of mentors Rama Ministries Church here in Toronto. And, uh, and uh, also I think the one in Ethiopia that I visited. Uh, he's very sharp, reads the Harvard Business Journal <laughs> regularly and, uh, and understands the practicalities as well as the spiritual. I have to say before about five minutes, but I, I would just say I get the heebie-jeebies, if you know what that word means, uh, <laughs> with some of the, the teaching, and it's just so out there in terms of, of God wants you to be wealthy and, and, and all of this, uh, that it, it, um, I have difficulty with it, you, you say. And the question I keep asking, are a lot of these people... Uh, uh, building the wealth of the pastor, and, and yet they are not progressing themselves. And uh, you do want to know how many failures there are, but, but you have to get these three categories, get the, the, the failures, 
And over here, you've got the ones that have really made it big. And you've got a whole lot of people in between that uh, are doing all right, but they're not doing uh, they're not doing great at it, and they're not becoming wealthy, but they're staying with it for other reasons that I just referred to a, a little bit ago. So uh, I think there's, I, and I don't know the future. I think if the neoliberal economy goes down, uh, I think some of these churches will also go down. I think they're built on that. But, uh, but if it continues at some level, especially globally, I think you might see it continue. You'll find, it'll continue with its place in the life of the church. There is one, one more thing. Uh, Wagner gets at this, that the church, moving from the political to the economic, the big thing is, one big thing that's going to change is that the churches are going to go from donor-based, you pay your money, you tithe, and you get your vote, uh, go from that to revenue-based. And that is another big area where people don't understand why the church is in the business of making money. You know, the pastors sell their books and tapes and, and, get, a, and get into real estate, all of that. And but that is the way it is done. That's not just something on the side. I think the prayer palace up here, uh, the uh, pastor's wife uh, is in real estate. I think a lot of that money comes from the real estate business. And yet Toronto Star convinced that they were just raking everything off of like some of that. But I think that deserves a little bit of deeper exploration beyond that. So, there you go. Laura has a question on the screen. Sorry, we have a question. Laura? Yeah, sorry, I just had to unmute. So, um, question though, I really wanted to know, you talked about the wealth and 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 obviously there's some evidence of those who have, um, uh, have that wealth, but um, it also came with influence and I'm just wondering like um it, where there, there that influence that change in society that change in communities or nations has that actually happened or is um or is there evidence of it well the the example that i gave which is a bad example is the uh church in nigeria by the way the anglicans 24 to 25% of all the Anglicans in the world are in Nigeria, not England. Just to let you know, <laughs> that's Nigeria for you. But uh, uh, that would be one example uh, uh, at the larger level. I think a lot of it is still uh, uh, aspirational. You don't find that much in, uh, in, the, in the Asian cultures because there's, there's the, the percentage of Christians is far, far smaller than in Africa. Uh, but, uh, but I would say, if we could get it down to a smaller, uh, smaller body, in Indonesia, church in Samara, a middle-sized city, the church there has something like the Gospel of the Kingdom Church, it's called. Uh, a church that seats 12,000 with the satellites has over 20,000 people. It may have changed since the pastor died rather suddenly here, uh, actually when I was on my trip there. And, uh, but the ministries that go on in that church is just outstanding. And, uh, and that pastor has a big influence on the whole city and that area around and has a big influence politically uh, and conversion. When they had a crusade, a healing crusade, over 3,000 people, and they would be all Muslims were baptized. So there's levels of influence. So it could be local, regional, provincial, but it can enlarge even beyond. Now, I think it is, it's beyond my comprehension that the end times revival will be done with wealth, but it, there may be some shifts we cannot predict. My clock says 12 o'clock, one minute after, something like that. Do you want to close down or do you want another question?
comment. I, just, I have one more question. <laughs> oh, please, yes. Yes. Sorry, um, again, um, taking this out of the prosperity gospel, we focused on the wealth of it or the financial. Um, how does that translate in some of the health, right? And well, the, the aspect of healing and health and wellness. Very good point. Actually, uh, the healing movement was strong. Healing was always in the Pentecostal movement, but the healing crusades with people like uh, A. A. Allen and uh, Oral Roberts gets starts kind of in the 40s and up through the 50s. And that was the, the era of the salvation healing movement that you notice by the time you get to the 70s, healing is drifting over into, into wealth. And so the, the prosperity gospel churches, it's hard to find healing crusades anymore. I don't know if you... I used to have healing missions in my church, and I was just thinking of back in the 70s and 80s down in the States. And it would be hard to find somebody who's actually working in that area of ministry anymore. So that's been, and thank you for bringing that up because that's a big cultural shift that actually occurred uh, with us around healing. Now, uh, the good side of that is churches all across our land and, and other places like the Anglican Church have appropriated the healing ministry uh, themselves. And so you can go into a non-charismatic, even a non-evangelical Anglican Church and you can go up to the front or to the side after you take communion and receive anointing for healing and laying on of hands. So that's pretty good. Is this like the, so this, a lot of the root of it is the identification with Calvary, what happened at Calvary, that now Jesus' trans, transformative spirit and power of God now manifest ourselves in better health, wealth, individually and maybe corporately. Yeah. So this is, that's what it is, it's because Jesus' death is not just for salvation. It's the souls. It is, it's the fullness of. But that goes back to A.B. Simpson, the fourfold gospel, the early Pentecostal, amongst the holiness Pentecostals, fivefold gospel, and uh, that would be science, yep. super sanctification. Yeah, no, that's all there. And it gets pulled out, you know, uh, you know, generations later. I, 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 I fear that the, the extreme cases of the hard prosperity types uh, can do a lot of harm and discredit to the ones that are doing well and for whom it means. Uh, Pat Francis conducts seminars for her young adults on how to create wealth, how to uh, save it, how to tithe it, and, and, and all of that. And that, but then you have to go back and ask, who's she talking to? Her constituency at the beginning, and, and is still predominantly uh, black, and many of them from, uh, from the islands, a lot from Jamaica and so on, and some from here. But, see, these are poor kids. They have no idea about how to, how to make money, how to, how to maximize their, their wealth. They don't know how to read the financial page in the newspaper. I was brought up poor, white, and uh, I still do not know how to read the financial page. I managed to, to get a salary and not get thrown in jail, and, uh, and, and that was enough, so that was enough for me to, to make a living. But uh, when you look at who she is ministering to and enabling, these are poor kids, young people, that uh, have no way to, to handle. So the other thing that she does is, is provide scholarships. At one point when I was talking, they had given over 100 scholarships. 60% go to members of the church and 40% even people outside for them to get an education. And she said, you've got to get that if you're going to get any place in life. So she put legs on her teaching. And so it's not just a big supernatural thing, but it, it just happens. I remember the time she said, uh, 
said some of you might have prayed that, that, that this week you're going to meet the, the, pre, the president, you're, you're going to ask for a $250,000 raise. God doesn't work like that. But she's very practical in many ways. So, uh, some of them, like Kenneth Copeland, I think created a different story. I, one thing about Kenneth Copeland and Hagen, Hagen often got a bad rap and and he deserved some of it, I suppose. But he he believed that God would bless you abundantly. That's where he stayed with it. Kenneth Copeland, a disciple, he finally came in and remembered that passage where he says, God will return to you a hundredfold. He took that literally and said, You will have a you God promised you a hundredfold of what you and Hagen actually challenged him on that. He said, brother, he said, that's not Bible teaching. And that he didn't give up on it, unfortunately. So that's, that's where there's a lot of sifting. And I'm just interested and curious, and I'm too old to see it probably, but to see where this goes in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And whether or not there's going to be a shift in... Uh, as we move away from Christendom to become a more secular society and, uh, and the, all, the, all the accoutrements of it uh, that, that we, we do and don't realize we're hanging on to. Uh, but once we move away from that, what will that look like? You know, the Anglican, uh, just, the Anglican Church <laughs> and Catholic Church, you notice all those vestments? We make a big fuss about the prosperity gospel preachers driving Cadillacs and Mercedes-Benz and so on. Do you know where this comes from? This comes from the beginning of the Roman Empire. And that, that mitre, you know, that pointy little thing. Uh, fortunately, in most cases, not a head under quite the same shape. Uh, but uh, that, that came from, the, uh, from a, a, a judicial or a government position. Or that, yeah. And the, uh, the circumstances. Some of that was normal garb that was worn on the streets by men during that time. It's six things. So. Uh, let's show our appreciation for David. Uh, I really appreciate that you provided a, a very rounded perspective on this and uh, not the usual, perhaps more fundamentalist tirade against the Masons. <laughs> and that historic perspective. It is very, very helpful here. So thank you for spending time with us uh, today. Really appreciate that. And um, so I hope this is really valuable to everybody. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of MCS Pentecast. These podcasts are available through Podbean, iTunes, and other podcast providers. Master's College and Seminary offers biblical, theological, and practical courses from a Pentecostal perspective at undergrad and graduate levels. For graduate courses, visit mpseminary.com. For undergrad courses at our Peterborough campus or online, visit mcs.edu.